Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Nancy Gonlin, professor of anthropology at Bellevue College, says that without electrical lighting to guide the way, our ancestors in the ancient world experienced night very differently than we do today. As light pollution continues to dissipate the darkness for us modern humans, the urgency to document the history of human experience from dusk till dawn has never been greater. She's advocating for an archaeology of night. Paul Bogard author of The End of Night, Searching for Natural Darkness in an Age of Artificial Light, spent his childhood summers in a cabin on a lake in northern Minnesota, where shooting stars cut across swaths of countless stars. The Milky Way reflected off the lake, and the woods were so dark he couldn't see the hands in front of his face. In our modern world of nights, as bright as a day, most of us no longer experience a true darkness. Eight out of ten Americans born today won't ever live where they can see the Milky Way. And uh, Bogart believes we should re-inhabit the darkness. We're going to talk about light pollution. Uh, we'll talk about dark skies. Even go back in uh, ancient history of uh, how humans uh, dealt with uh, night. And uh, we bring on uh, for the hour uh, Paul Bogard. Welcome back to the program. Oh, great to be here. Thanks for having me. Paul, B- Paul Bogard is author of uh, uh, the uh, book I referenced, The End of Night. Also editor of an anthology, Let There Be Night, testimony on behalf of the dark and uh, he is assistant professor of English at James Madison University. Uh, Paul Bogard, uh, now working on a, a new book, I understand. Uh, I am. Uh, when I describe it to people, some people say, uh, you were looking up at the sky and now you're looking down at the ground um, <laughs> because I'm, <laughs> I'm investigating our connections uh, to and our separation from the natural ground at our feet, how... Uh, so many of us spend most of our lives inside, and, and when we walk outside, we're on concrete. So we've really lost direct contact with the ground, and that has uh, uh, consequences for us um, in, in many ways. That's a continuation in some ways, I think, of, of uh, you know, the end of night. Uh, mm-hmm. I believe you, I've, I've read you saying somewhere that uh, we, we, uh, if we lose our connection with the night, we'd lose our connection with uh, you know, the world around us. You know, it really is. I think um, the, a lot of the themes are going to be similar in the new book to the end of night. I just, I, I think it's so important that we're connected uh, to the world that sustains us, um, whether it's uh, darkness, uh, so important for us in so many ways, or certainly the ground at our feet that gives us uh, our food, our water, our energy, and our spirit. And we have a lot of wonderful fantastic things to enjoy in our modern civilization, but um, it seems like we often forget that uh, at the end of the day, these lives we enjoy are uh, sustained by the natural world, and we, uh, we we can't lose sight of that. Later in the program, we're going to bring on Adam Block, who is uh, manager of the Sky Center at the University of Arizona, and an award-winning uh, uh, photographer, of, especially of, of stars and that world around us. We'll bring on uh, Pete uh, Strasser from, and John Berentine from International Dark Sky Association. And uh, right now we bring on Dr. Christine Dixon, who's uh, the Department of Anthropology, uh, Anthropology, I believe, at Bellevue College. Dr. Dixon, welcome to the program. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And I believe you're a colleague of, of Dr. Gonlin, who we quoted at the beginning of the program here. I am. I have been very fortunate to work with Dr. Gonlin, who is brilliantly uh, bringing this topic to our awareness in archaeology. Uh, so, um, and I encountered her article um, at uh, University Press of Colorado on their their website. Um, so this is very interesting 
an archaeology of, of night. To Professor Gonlin saying that uh, without electrical guide, uh, lighting, obviously, our ancestors experienced night very differently than, than we do. And she's encouraging us to uh, explore the archaeology of night. That's correct. Yeah, so the first time that she brought this up to me, we were at a research meeting, and she walked in, and we sat down, and I can remember very vividly her talking to me and saying, well, I was thinking last night <laughs> about how we study the past and that we often don't even address the night. And I remember that so clearly because I looked at her and realized I just watched archaeology change. Uh, we spend a lot of time in archaeology talking a lot about daily practices and how our daily practices shape our history and our lives. And when we're reconstructing human stories, we often are looking at daily practices. And here, right, hiding in plain sight, this most brilliant um, awareness that Nancy Gonlin brings to us of we have to also look at the other part of the day, right? We also have to try to see the night. And in archaeology, that can be rather challenging to do so. Yeah, how, how, how does an archaeologist go about uh, investigating the way ancient peoples experienced dark? Certainly. So we are working on that uh, as we speak. Uh, fortunately, we have a um, conference session that Dr. Gonlin and Dr. April Nell have uh, organized for the Society of American Archaeology meeting coming up this spring. And what we're going to do is bring together scholars from around the world to ask this question exactly. How do we even see night? One of the challenges in the archaeological record is we have to direct our focus and think about the past and try to uh, enliven it or embody it. And so there are indicators of night if you look for them. The problem is we haven't spent a lot of time looking for them. So the kinds of things that we find, uh, things like artifacts, so um, things like indications or uh, carvings that show torches or the remains of fire pits, obviously associated material culture with nighttime, uh, but we often haven't looked at that directly. Uh, it's hard to get that kind of resolution in the past. I'm very fortunate. I get to work at uh, an archaeological site in El Salvador called Seren. It was buried by volcanic ash. It's a Maya community, um, buried about 1,400 years ago. And because of that preservation, we actually get more indicators of night. So at that site, we have uh, sleeping beds or platforms inside of a house where people would have slept, uh, we have the sleeping mats that they would have used that were rolled up and stored in the rafters right before the volcanic eruption. So it gives us an indication of what some part of their nightly practices were like. We also get these um, ceramic uh, hooks that are used on either side of the doors where they could have secured and latched shut a door. Again, kind of a separation from outside and inside, perhaps keeping out light keeping in warmth in night. So mm. there are indications. Uh, in the Maya area, one of the most famous examples is lintel 24 from Yashitlan in Mexico. And this lintel famously depicts Lady Shook uh, in a bloodletting ceremony. She's actually pulling thorns through her tongue. <laughs> wow. And what's significant, or how we even connect that tonight, is that she's actually standing next to King Shield Jaguar, while he is holding a torch to illuminate this process. Now, many of us have looked at this lintel 
Those of us who work in Mesoamerica have seen it many times. Um, but I don't think anyone has looked at it with the vision of trying to recognize it's being illuminated. And it's being illuminated because this is happening at night. And that's where the brilliance of my colleague and mentor, Dr. Gonlin, comes in to really start to help us question what would night be like in the past? Because if we really want to question the importance and understand the human story, a big part of that was not just their daytime lives. Their nighttime lives were also shaping their histories and their stories. And certainly, as you're going to talk about much more further in this program, this has changed a great deal for many of us in our lives, that we have a different experience of night now than we would have 1,400 years ago or more throughout time and throughout space. Yeah, very interesting. Uh, appreciate you uh, telling us about this, and I guess we'll be we'll be reading more about the archaeology of night. Thank you. It's, coming coming it's up, a fantastic topic, and it's we are very fortunate to have wonderful colleagues coming together to look at this topic because we also have to recognize that night is an experience the same way around the world. So, at different latitudes, at different seasons, different years, we will have different experiences of the night through human history. Yeah, certainly, certainly. Well, I appreciate you uh, telling us about it. Um, we've been talking with uh, Dr. Christine Dixon, who's uh, on the fac uh, Faculty of Anthropology at uh, Bellevue College. Appreciate that. Thank you so much for having me on. Have a great day. You too. Uh, Paul Bogard, this, uh, at least for me, excites the imagination. It's a connection to the, the past, but as, as uh, Dr. Dixon was talking uh, I was thinking uh, just the light coming in from stars that, uh, you know, with more and more we can't see anymore, uh, that connects us to an even more distant past, you know, millions of light years in the past. Yeah, it really does. And I, I share your excitement um, listening to her describe uh, her work and, and this new uh, field of archaeology. I think, you know, the, the thing about um, artificial light, and, and we should be quick to say, you know, that the, the problem isn't artificial light. Artificial light at night is, is something we all appreciate and like. It's just that um, we use too much of it, and we use it in ways that, that aren't good for us. And I think that uh, in using too much of it, um, we cut ourselves off from this, uh, you know, what for all of human history has been um, a vital part of, of the human experience. And I like to say, you know, we've we've taken what was one of the most common experiences, which is walking out your door and coming face to face with the universe. Um, and we've made that one of the most rare of human experiences. And I think that, you know, when we think about the past and you don't have to even go back 1400 years, you can go back, you know, a hundred years uh, or 200 years. And um, uh, the, the view of the night sky and seeing these stars that were, born so long ago, uh, that was a common part of what it meant to be a human being. I think we've, we've really lost quite a bit now that we, uh, we don't get to have that experience. Well, even uh, go back to your childhood, you know, you're not that old, uh, but, you know, it's, yeah. uh, in yeah. Minnesota, uh, night so dark, you couldn't see your hand in front of your face. Right. And, uh, you know, the, the, the truth of, of, natural darkness is when it gets really dark like that, you actually begin to see lights um, like the stars and, and uh, the northern lights and, and that kind of thing, beautiful moonlights. I mean, uh, I think, you know, folks who are living in, 
in cities have no idea how bright the full moon is and how beautiful, you know, how it uh, lights up the, the the landscape and that kind of thing. So um, for me, I was so lucky that I had that experience as a kid. It really, as I say in the book, uh, it imprinted on me that experience of, of a naturally dark night with all of uh, the beauty of night. Um, it's just, it became part of me and I was, I'm really lucky that was part of my childhood because as you mentioned in the introduction, um, one of the saddest things about what we're talking about now is that uh, our kids are, are really losing or, you know, they never get to experience that kind of thing. Um, and so folks who are a little bit older might know what we're talking about when we talk about the Milky Way from horizon to horizon or shooting stars or, you know, uh, so much so many stars that you uh, you can you can see shadows on the ground that kind of thing. But I think for most younger people, they they're probably shaking their heads like I don't even know what they're talking about. Uh, before we go to break, and, and we're going to uh, be bringing in um, Adam Block, who's the manager of the Sky Center at uh, Arizona, award-winning photographer of, of stars. Uh, we'll be talking later in the program with Pete Strasser and John Berentine from International Dark Sky Association as well. We have on with us uh, for the hour Paul Bogard, who's author of The End of Night, Searching, Searching for Natural Darkness in the Age of Artificial Light. Before we go to break, uh, I wonder if you could talk, Paul Bogard, about... Las Vegas, and you writing this is this is the first section of your book, at least yeah. uh, quoting you. At least when it comes to light pollution, what happens in Vegas does not stay in Vegas. And this this affects us in Utah, of course, and surrounding states. Sure, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I um, for folks who aren't familiar with the book, I, I I borrow what's called the Bortle scale. It's a scale of darkness that begins with nine and goes down to one. Nine being our brightest places, and one being our darkest places and of course for uh the, for the chapter on nine the brightest places i had to go to las vegas um kind of the poster child for uh for light pollution in some ways and um it really is remarkable uh when i get to the end of the book and i'm in death valley national park uh ex- you know experiencing a wondrous night sky and just a beautiful night um we could still in in parts of the park we could still see the glow from Las Vegas on the horizon. So it really has an impact that goes uh, for many, many miles out into the what we think of as kind of the wild uh, canyon countryside. And in fact, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm remembering now, I've got the table of contents in front of me in your book. You count down from nine to one. Uh, that's the border scale, right? Nine being the brightest places and you go to the darkest. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Yep. Um, yeah, so- and I think Go ahead. Uh, I wonder where where most of us live then on the on the scale the places that we live you know normal town where would well, we that's, be? Well, you know that's it's funny. I, that's what I was just going to say is that I think you know the maybe the most remarkable thing about that scale is that most Americans live most of their lives in level five and above, and it's a little bit different you know for folks uh, out west, folks in Utah can can experience darkness a little bit more, but I can tell you from now living out east for a few years that um, that's really true, and, and and people just have never or very rarely experienced anything darker than what would be about a three on that scale, which is, again, um, it's dark at night, but it's not nearly as dark and not nearly as uh, beautiful or inspiring as it used to be. And you, uh, you cited... Uh, uh 
very troubling, I guess, fact. Eight out of 10 Americans born today won't ever live where they can see the Milky Way. Yeah, it is troubling. And that's an estimate. Um, but I, you know, you, it makes a lot of sense. You know, when you think about more and more of us are living in cities, um, lots of folks who live in cities don't have the means to, uh, to get out to someplace dark. Um, sometimes when people hear uh, me or other folks talking about this issue, they say, well, just, you know, drive somewhere dark or fly somewhere dark. And I, <laughs> I think, you know, a lot for a lot of kids, a lot of people, and especially kids, um, that's just an impossibility. It's just uh, they never get out from under the light. And I think what's even worse is that uh, they rarely or never even consider that there is somewhere else that um, isn't like the city they live in at night. We're talking about light pollution, dark skies. What's lost when uh, when we no longer experience truly dark skies? Paul Bogart is with us. Uh, he's author of The End of Night, and he's assistant professor at uh, James Madison University. Um, we are talked previously with Dr. Christine Dixon uh, at Bellevue College. And uh, coming up later in the program, we'll talk with Pete Strasser and John Barentine from International Dark Sky Association. Following the break, we'll bring on Adam Block, who's manager of the Sky Center at the University of Arizona, and an award-winning uh, photographer. More following the break. This is Management Minute by Professor Scott Hammond. If you're asking yourself why your customer isn't buying your product or service, then maybe you don't know your customer. Excellent companies have regular dialogues with their customer. Customer relationships and service should be a part of every employee's responsibility. For example, a hospital system recently trained its housekeeping staff, the people who clean the patient's rooms, on how to better listen to patients because they're there with the patient. Your value is defined by your customers, not your marketing people or strategic planners. Customers tell us why they buy and we just have to listen. Create excellence in your company by really listening to your customers and knowing how to bring value to them. The Management Minute is brought to you by our members and the USU Shingo MBA program at the John M. Huntsman School of Business, a 15-month graduate degree for executives giving knowledge and skills to leverage the principles and tools of lean continuous improvement. Huntsman.usu.edu. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Early in the program, we talked about a, a new field, the archaeology of night. How did our ancestors in the ancient world experience night? Uh, Professor Gonlin at Bellevue College says uh, it's very different from what we do today because we have electrical lighting. We have artificial light, which is a, a blessing for us, of course, but uh, can be a problem. Uh, Paul Bogard is with us for the hour. He's author of The End of Night. And uh, he says eight out of ten Americans born today won't ever live where they can see the Milky Way. He believes we should re-inhabit the darkness. Later in the program, we're going to be talking with uh, two representatives from the International Dark Sky Association, Pete Strasser and John Barentine. Right now, we bring on uh, Adam Block, uh, who is uh, manager uh, and uh, primary speaker at the uh, Sky Center, University of Arizona. Uh, Adam Block, uh, thanks for joining us. Welcome to the program. Good morning. Thank you very much for inviting me to be here. So your title, manager and primary speaker, I, I think a big part of your job is is getting the word out, right, on the, 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 the uh, beauty and majesty of the night sky and, and what we gain. That, that's exactly right. So I, I uh, manage the public outreach 
basically stargazing programs at the Mount Lemmon Sky Center. And what we do is we offer experiences that allow people basically access to the universe. What I do is I, I stand with our guests. They purchase tickets to come to the mountain and uh, stand on the cosmic shore. We peer into the vastness of space using our eyes and a very large telescope, the Schulman telescope, atop the mountain. It's, uh, it's kind of funny, though, as has already been uh, you know, uh, brought up, is that long ago, this kind of job, my very livelihood, kind of would have been laughed upon. I mean, long ago, everyone could step outside, look up at the sky, and no one would pay for that opportunity to see the wonders of the universe. But that is now actually a job I have because the sky is so bright in most places and there are fewer and fewer sanctuaries to enjoy the night sky. So it's, uh, it's, also, it's a lot of fun to be able to show people the night sky and to see the universe under relatively good conditions. But it's, it's an interesting idea that, you know, long ago this kind of thing wouldn't exist, but now it does. What reaction do you get? You, you invite people to come to, as you say, the cosmic shore, uh, you know, peer out uh, into the vast uh, sea, to use that metaphor. What, what, what are people's reactions? People's reactions are genuinely uh, inspired and awed by what they see, because this is an experience that, is one, it's a combination of, uh, there is some fear. If you've not seen the night sky before and just been open to looking out into the, the distance, um, it, it's, it's really a moving experience. And at the same time, it's inspirational. It's something that people really key into emotionally. Uh, one of the things that I think is interesting about the experience of showing people the night sky is that this is a, cult, uh, a cross-cultural experience. There, Whenever you can identify something that is a human, uniquely human kind of uh, uh, emotional response. You know it's probably something important. And the, the interesting thing about being in the dark is that we as humans, we, we have a visceral reaction. Literally, our bodies change when we are out under the dark sky. Our, our eyes become more sensitive and our senses are heightened. And uh, that is a cross-cultural reaction. Everyone has that. But no longer does everyone appreciate it because we are rarely in the dark, looking at the sky, seeing nature in that form. So it really is a, is a very powerful thing, and I think people take away from it, wow. Now, of course, what we do on the mountain is a combination of taking advantage of that wow, of that excitement, and translating it to why it's important. Of course, we do research in astronomy and try to understand the world around us. So this offers us an opportunity by showing people the night sky to give them a sense of how science and astronomy, how it all works, to give people a perspective about where they are in the universe. Uh, Paul Bogard, um, taking off on, on that, uh, I'm reading a piece that you did with uh, Chris Kokinos, who used to be here at Utah State University, he's now at University of Arizona. I'm sure, Adam, you know Professor Kokinos. Um and you were saying this piece, Paul, that uh, we're losing or have lost our connection with the surrounding universe by light pollution. And this disconnection, you write, from the rest of creation reflects the disconnected way we live these days. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, I think uh, if you think about light um, throughout human history, it's always been incredibly symbolic. And I think that uh, our use of light, and in, when we're talking about light pollution, we're talking about our overuse uh, and misuse of light, 
is also very symbolic. Um, I think for me, it's it's symbolic of our discon- of this disconnect from uh, the rest of nature, uh, from the universe. It kind of is symbolic of our um, disregard for uh, use of resources. We feel like we can just uh, blast light all over the place and use as much as we as as we want. Um, and I think that uh, what's exciting when we start to think about um, this challenge of light pollution is that it really is a challenge that we can do something about. It's it's uh, some we know how to solve the problem. And what's exciting for me is that when I think about solving the problem and using light at night um, in more thoughtful and responsible and artistic, beautiful ways. I think that could be really symbolic, too, of a renewed connection to to nature and to the universe. Uh, and that sounds pretty great to me. Mm. Adam Block, you mentioned before that, uh, you know, you get this reaction from people. Uh, then what do you what do you hope they they do? What do you what do you hope they do with that? What do you hope happens? Better access to the night sky and they could see the stars and the universe overhead they could not appreciate in the way that we can today in some sense what it all means or to have a greater understanding of the universe now with what we understand we live in a galaxy and all of those stars over our head those are stars in our own galaxy and we can peer beyond them to other galaxies we upon looking at that night sky i hope that our visitors get this impression that we have this greater understanding of the world around us and they still have this opportunity to see it take advantage of it, cherish it, and potentially protect it. Uh, of course, I am a little bit biased, right? This is my livelihood, right. so I do hope that we, we get to protect this for as long as possible. And uh, um, if you didn't know it, there's actually a word for this idea of lighting the night sky, Noct Kylador. Noct is night, and Kylador from Kylum means uh, sky in Latin. I happen to have a great deal of Noct Kylodorosity, But uh, I think it's something that everyone has in their heart at some level, and once exposed to it, uh, they really get to to get to feel that. Unfortunately, now there's a generation of people, potentially, who have literally never seen the night sky. We have people, visitors come and tell me that they had never seen things as we are able to do because just never had the opportunity. Nowadays, you have to drive potentially many hours outside of a city or travel to some place far away in order to to really appreciate and have this kind of experience. That's what we offer at the Sky Center, but uh, it's a really powerful one. Paul Bogard, uh, in that same piece uh, that I referenced before, uh, you talked about the uh, another danger from being closed off through light pollution, and that is that we might get the impression that we're the only game in town, is how you phrase it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that's part of that, uh, you know, um, knowing our place uh, as connected to the rest of nature and to the universe. Uh, I think when you have the experience that we're talking about of, of walking out your door and coming face-to-face with the universe, it naturally leads, I think, for most people to thoughts of what is my place in the universe? How am I, you know, how does this all make sense? Um, and I think when we lose that experience, it just becomes far too easy to imagine that, uh, you know, human beings are the be-all, end-all, and that there's really nothing else. We're, we're not connected to anything bigger than us, for example. I, again, I think that's a real, um, uh, we've lost a lot. We've lost something really important when we, 
when we lose that experience, we, we tend to be uh, hubris uh, grows in ways that I don't think we can afford uh, in this day and age. Adam Block, uh, I was interested, um, went to the Sky Center website. There's a link to a story. So they're in Tucson. Apparently there's a, a, a highway development. There's, I don't know how to describe this, uh, a marquee, a screen there with with images of the of the sky that you can view as you drive down the drive down the street. Wow, I know that. I don't think that that's a lighted thing. I know that there are examples in town where there are what I would call city improvements, and there are pictures that are in the underpasses. Oh, that's that all. I think that's what it was. Funny. Yes, mm-hmm. that's what it. Yeah, good. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, there are pictures in town that are part of city improvement type things that highlight the astronomy and uh, the night sky and things like that. That's a big part, obviously, of the economy here in Tucson and uh, the surrounding area. Here in the southwest, we enjoy uh, the night sky frequently because it's clear here often. And uh, Tucson, for example, is a a model city for attempting to minimize the uh, intrusiveness of the lights of the city itself and illuminating the night sky. So uh, that's a big part of what happens here, and uh, it's highlighted around town. Uh, we just have a couple minutes left in this segment, and Adam Block, I wonder, here at the close of this segment, uh, I wonder if you could tell us, uh, again, maybe wrapping up, uh, what's lost if we if we lose the, the night sky, and you know, this startling statistic that, uh, or uh, I guess a projection that 8 out of 10 Americans born today will live where they won't ever see the Milky Way in all its glory. Okay. So I, I, I'm going to talk to you not as a scientist. I'll answer the question instead more as a, uh, I don't know where to come from. It, I think what we lose is a sense of identity. Uh, that's what you'll find in literature. The loss of identity is something that is extremely important and valued at a personal level. And uh, knowing our place in the universe literally as a perspective of knowing where we are and, and what we can accomplish is extremely important. Um, this applies not only to the fields of science, but many other things that are in the human experience. And I think that having this kind of access to be able to see the night sky and literally understand the way the world really works is key to having this greater understanding of um, where our place is on the Earth and and how important it is to do certain things. And those things might include making life better for for everyone involved. It doesn't seem like there's a a direct connection here, but I I think there literally is. Um, And we try to highlight that at the Sky Center by highlighting how important it is to appreciate the way that science and research is beneficial to everyone, and many of those things come from literally just appreciating uh, the sky, having curiosity about the world around us. So that very natural and um, intrinsic nature that we have is expressed through our programs, and it leads to other very beneficial things. That is a loss that uh, I don't think we can live without. It's a loss of identity, and it's a loss of potential um, betterment for everyone. Adam Block is a manager of the Sky Center at uh, University of Arizona. Uh, Thanks so much. Appreciate it. Thank you very much. Some beautiful photographs you can see there as well, uh, skycenter.arizona.edu. Before we go to break, um, I want to make a connection, uh, Paul Bogard, 
uh, we made reference to this earlier in the program between uh, you know end of sky and end of dark rather um, and uh, your new book and the and the connection is we sort of case ourselves off from the natural world don't we we, we walk on cement we uh, we 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 have brilliantly lit a night and uh, you know we we live in nice houses with with all the conveniences but we we block ourselves off from the world yeah we really do and i i think you know a lot of what we lose um are intangible things you know uh we the effect to our spirit to our soul um losing things like uh quiet uh solitude beauty and those kind of things hard to put a price tag on, but I think it's important for folks as well to consider that um, a lot of the things, a lot of the effects of the separation really can have a price tag and really can impact us uh, immediately. I'm thinking uh, the cost to our physical health, for example, of being exposed to artificial light at night. Um, uh, this is pretty serious stuff, or the cost to uh, nocturnal animals, um, including a lot of the insects that uh, food chains rely on uh, throughout the environment. So it's not just a kind of a wishy-washy, oh, it's too bad we can't see the stars kind of thing. These separations are really cutting us off from uh, the sources of our sustenance, the things we need in order to live, uh, and they uh, sooner or later will impact all of us. I wanted to stay just a little bit on the new book as well. What uh, what are you finding? By the way, what uh, what places are you going? I know with the end of night, you you traveled to a lot of places. What sorts of places are you going with the new book? <laughs> well, I, I had the particular uh, challenge of you know when you're writing about the ground, um, you could go almost anywhere. So I had to uh, to make some choices, but. Um, uh, one of the first places I went to was Gettysburg, uh, you know, to, to think about hallowed ground, for example. Um, what do we mean by that? And I also uh, was fortunate to go to eastern Poland and visit uh, a couple of the Nazi uh, death camps and try to make sense of, um, you know, what does it mean to stand uh, at Treblinka, um, where 900,000 people were murdered in just over a year, you know, on, on that ground. What, how, what does that mean? And, and then other places that are a little more, um, well, not quite as, as dramatic, but a place like Iowa, where, uh, you know, so much of the state is, is planted into corn and soybeans, and uh, it's the most transformed state in the Union. 98% of the, the state has been transformed from its original states. And I'm just, I'm trying to draw attention again to these grounds that sustain us uh, with our food, our water, our energy, our spirit. Um, I go to Ohio to look at fracking. I go to North Dakota to the Bakken to look at the gas and oil exploration there. Just again, trying to draw our attention to the ground at our feet, wherever we live, and trying to reconnect folks with uh, how important that just that experience of walking the earth uh, really is. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we will have representatives from the International Dark Sky Association to conclude the uh, program. Also in this next segment, I'll ask uh, Paul Bogard uh, how we should re-inhabit uh, the darkness. He says we we should. I'll ask him how. Um, he is author of uh, The End of Night and the new book uh, coming out, I believe, next year is called The Ground, Right. 
Yeah, that's the working title. I don't know that we've actually chosen the final title. We'll see. And yeah. uh, and I hope when it comes out, you'll come on with us to talk about that. Very interesting. Oh, my pleasure. Um, we are talking about dark skies. We're talking about light pollution and what is lost in a world that is artificially lit up. We will take a break and uh, come back with Paul Bogard who is, in addition to being author of uh, those books, assistant professor at uh, James Madison University. Paul Bogard, what do you teach there? Uh, I teach creative writing and environmental literature. Okay. And uh, we will uh, come back uh, with uh, Paul Bogard. Also, we'll have Pete Strasser and John Berentine from International Dark Sky Association. Uh, you're welcome to uh, join in. We'd love to have your thoughts, maybe some experiences, uh, dark nights or the lack thereof. You can join us by email to upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. Uh, and our phone number is 1-800-826-1495. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and USU Partners in Business Leadership Conference, March 17th at the USU Eccles Conference Center. Introducing keynote speaker David Bywater, COO of Vivint. More about the speaker lineup at partners.usu.edu. Hi, I'm Talia Schlanger. Animals is the new HBO show that imagines what city-dwelling critters talk about when humans aren't paying attention. Next time on Q, I'll speak with its creators about what the animated series says about modern urban living. That's coming up on Q from PRI Public Radio International. Join us Monday afternoon at 1 and pledge your membership to Utah Public Radio. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking about light pollution, dark skies, and you're welcome to join us. UPRAccessGmail.com is the email, UPRAccessGmail.com. You can join us uh, at our toll-free number, 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495. We have with us Paul Bogard, author of The End of Night. Now we bring in uh, Pete Strasser with the International Dark Sky Association. Pete Strasser, welcome to the program. Good morning. Thank you for having Good me morning. on. Good morning. And uh, John Berentine, also with the International Dark Sky Association. Thanks for joining us. Hi, Tom. Glad to be with you. Uh, let me start with Pete Strasser. Um, uh, tell me a little bit about the International Dark Sky Association. What, what's your goal? How long have you been around? Well, I've been around for over 20 years. Um, its inception was based upon the uh, uh, problems associated with astronomical viewing um, and just the encroachment of the uh, city lights uh, into uh, dark areas. Uh, one of the uh, principal astronomers at Kitt Peak Observatory when he uh, retired uh, was uh, Dr. David Crawford. He was one of the co-founders of the um, International Dark Sky Association. Uh, there's no question that the astronomical uh, viewing was its roots, but it has uh, extended far beyond that. Uh, into um, just problems dealing with circadian disruption, uh, which is uh, becoming more and more widely understood, and um, nocturnal habitat disruption. That there's, it's more than just the people who are bothered. Uh, we have half of the world is, is dark at night and evolved with that, and to have such a change um, is really a, a profound difference uh, to the environment. John Berentine, what about the extent of uh, light pollution, is it, and is it growing? growing steadily essentially since the introduction of electric light over 100 years ago 
And in the industrial period in the West here, it, it was actually kind of growing faster than the rate of population growth. And we're starting to see that turn over a bit to where it's, it's slowing and approaching population growth, which has to do with the dynamics involving the economy, except that now we're finding that the newly industrialized parts of the world um, outside of the West are now beginning to experience what we went through in the past several decades, and they're seeing the amount of light pollution sort of growing explosively right now. What, what areas? I, guess, I would imagine heavily urbanized areas? Is... It's mainly urbanized areas in countries like China, India, uh, areas like sub-Saharan Africa, where their economies are rapidly increasing right now and uh sort of in parallel with the the growth of their industrial capacity, what they're finding is that uh, their desire is for a more Western standard of living. And one of the expressions of that is to light up their cities very brightly at night. So they look like what they imagine Western cities would look like. Mm -hmm. Yeah, following the example. Paul Bogard, you've said you believe we should re-inhabit the darkness. How do we do that? Oh, we can do a lot of uh, do that in many ways. I think that uh, you know, first of all, it's an awareness uh, issue. It's it's just, uh, and what we're doing today is is drawing our awareness to uh, the beauty of the night sky, uh, all the intangible effects of that experience, and and that there is uh, a world out there beyond the the lights. Um, I think if you're in a city, uh, one of the things you can do, if there's a planetarium, that can be a wonderful. Uh, first step. Uh, stargazing with uh, local um, astronomy groups can be a wonderful uh, activity. And I think uh, the national parks are doing uh, vitally important work to help us re-inhabit the, the night. I think um, this is a, you know, it's a really important issue for anybody who has kids. Uh, it's a great family activity to go to these places that I'm talking about or just to wander down the block to the local park and, and tilt your head back and, and see what you can see and just be outside at night um, and experience the, the, you know, what is often such a wonderful and beautiful uh, time. Pete Strasser with the International Dark Sky Association. What, what would you say in terms of, uh, I don't know, community action? Uh, do you have uh, templates, helps, uh, suggestions if you want to get your community to, to reduce light pollution? Yeah, there are, are several ways that the, the community can become engaged in that. Um, there are ordinances um, that uh, communities have enacted. Uh, Tucson was one of the first. Uh, there are other communities uh, all over all over the world that uh, have chosen to um, use light appropriately, which is really the the crux of what we're about. Um, you know, our name says dark sky; it doesn't say dark ground. You can have both. Um, good application and design and reasonable lighting levels uh, will allow um, the uh, community to have the light that it deems is necessary and, and yet still maintain um, the, uh, the beauty of the heavens. I mean, I, I live in the Tucson metro area, which has uh, almost a million people in it, and I live six miles from both the city center and the Mount Lemmon Observatory, which is kind of interesting. And I can see the Milky Way from my driveway virtually every night. So it can be done. Um, to say that, you know, you, we have to eliminate one to get the other, that's just simply not the case. John Berntine, also with the National Dark Sky Association, I wonder, on your website, um, there, there's a section called Success Stories. I wonder if you could tell me a success story. 
actually tell you a couple of success stories uh, that are very specific to Utah. And the, the one that's my favorite is that um, among our programs is one that I run that's called International Dark Sky Places, where we designate um, parks, communities, and reserves around the world for their efforts to try to protect their dark skies. And Utah is a really outstanding example of this. There right now are five of our dark sky parks in the state of Utah, and that is more than any other state in the United States. So in terms of, of the awareness and people trying to do something to preserve and protect these places, I think that's a fantastic success story. And you have one right there in uh, along the area between Salt Lake City uh, and a little north into Ogden. If you go over into the Ogden Valley, Weber County has a park called North Fork Park that was designated last year as one of our dark sky parks. And to have a place like that that's right next to one of the major urban centers of the United States and accessible to so many people and yet is managing to keep it sky dark, I think is a, a, one of the best success stories of all. No, that's uh, that's wonderful. So you have, so we have five uh, parks in Utah. I was aware of uh, Canyonlands National Park had been named International Dark an International Dark Sky Park by your organization. They've done a lot of work, I know, in Canyonlands. They have, and uh, as many people in Utah know, there's you know a huge amount of public lands in the southern half of the state, many of which are national parks or national monuments. And part of that is uh, you're just an awful long way away from a lot of human development, and so that has a natural tendency to keep the skies dark, but the people at places like Canyonlands are looking decades into the future and asking, you know, assuming that that population continues to grow in the Four Corners area, what will we do to try to protect these places into the future? And that's really one of the hallmarks of a dark sky park is being proactive about protecting that status looking forward. Pete Strasser, we're coming down to the end of time here. Um, what would you suggest an individual do or, or a family? Uh, we talked about community uh, level, but what about individual and family level? What, what to do? Well, they can uh, Becoming aware of it is, is really kind of the critical thing. Um, realizing that their choice in um, lights that they use around the home um, can actually have an impact as far as their visibility in their neighborhood. Um, most principally is to choose a light that where you, you can't see the light source, you know, and it, it sounds kind of uh, simple and um, really not all that um, substantive, but having, when you see the light, it, it, it causes your, your pupils to constrict and it, it, it actually reduces the visibility for the very reason that we put in the light for visibility. If we put in the wrong kind, it actually inhibits it. So using the right source, you know, such that you, you light the area not to, and you don't see the source of the light, um, it, it makes a vast difference to uh, how your, your area is perceived and how the neighborhood is. It actually becomes a safer environment instead of having your eyes, you know, blasted by glare from an improperly designed fixture. Uh, a well-lighted scene is a much safer scene. So there are options available for the homeowner, and then they can become active within their community if they want to have a more uh, uh, broad, sweeping change uh, for their area. Just have a couple minutes left to give the last word to Paul Bogard. I wonder, you've spent a lot of time with thinking about dark skies. Um, you know, uh, an anthology, the book End of, End of Night. Um, I wonder, from the time, especially the time the Sense End of Night came out, 
Um, are, are you hopeful that we'll be able to reclaim the night? What do, what do you think going forward? Yeah, I am hopeful. I mean, I, I choose to be hopeful. I think uh, um, I'm, we're really lucky to have uh, Pete and John talking with us today, and I would encourage uh, any, anybody who's listening to visit the IDA's website at darksky.org to learn a lot more about all the things that we're talking about. They have a wonderful website there, and uh, the IDA has helped me be hopeful because they're doing such um, important work in, all around the world, actually, um, which is fantastic. And I think that, um, as Pete just said, you know, the, um, the main issue is awareness. You know, m- most people, by and large, aren't really aware of light pollution. We're so kind of uh, subsumed by it that we don't recognize um, how much light there is around us. And I think that what I've seen traveling the country and and the world talking about the book is that all it takes is kind of showing a few slides um, to people and they they kind of, uh, this is probably the wrong analogy, but the the light bulb goes on and people think, wow, that's right. We're using light in ways that um, really, uh, as Pete just kind of alluded to, reduce our safety. I mean, that's the thing that so many people are concerned about, they say, oh, you know, we have to have all this light for safety and security. And it's really, you know, it's not about not having light. Nobody's saying we're not going to have any lights at night. What we're saying is, yes, let's use light thoughtfully and responsibly. Let's let's use it only where we need it. Let's, let's uh, shine it down where we need it. We can make these simple changes that will make a huge difference in terms of this problem of light pollution that affects all of us. We are out of time. Um, much more to be found, as you mentioned, at uh, the website for International Dark Sky Association, which is darksky.org. Um, Paul Bogard is with us, and he is the author of The End of Night. also teaches at James Madison University. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you. Pete Strasser with the International Dark Sky Association. Thanks. I appreciate it. Thank and you. John Berentine with International Dark Sky Association. Thank you. Thanks for having us, Tom. Earlier in the program, we had Adam Block on with us from the Sky Center, University of Arizona, and Dr. Christine Dixon, who uh, I made a mistake. She is with Green River College, and our thanks to her as well. Uh, Coming up tomorrow, we'll be talking with Great Old Broads for Wilderness. That's the program tomorrow. Hope you'll join us. Thanks for listening today.